Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Ten is one of those albums where the hits are great. And they're well-loved and they're evocative of the era they came from. But I still don't think they do the rest of the album justice. The gold is buried below the thousands of times in the last 30 years that we've heard even flow on the radio. The thing about Ten is that there's No filler. Ten yielded, no pun intended, sorry, Pearl Jam, three hit songs. But the real meat of this album lies in the non-single tracks. Side two is somehow even beefier than side one, and side one is awesome. There's Oceans, Porch, Garden, Deep, and Release coming at you all in a row, taking you on an emotional and sonic roller coaster. On an album that sold 13 million copies with 11 tracks and one of the most recognizable and controversial music videos ever, so much attention is paid to just three songs when the remaining majority of them deserve all of that praise and more. In this episode of The Opus, we dig into the songs we haven't been hearing on the radio over the last 30 years. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. Let's get on in there. It's been a real trip for us Gen Xers to go through that thing where you grow up listening to rock radio all your life, and then... The songs that were on the modern or alternative stations start popping up on the classic rock stations. I mean, we're certainly not the first generation to have that happen. I imagine it was just as jarring for people my age in the early 80s when the format was created to all of a sudden hear the phrases get the let out and timeless hits of yesteryear in the same breath. But between radio programming and the algorithms of streaming services shuffle functions, We've all been subjected to roughly the same handfuls of singles 
for the duration. But what makes an album like 10 really special, though, are the tracks that didn't make it to the shuffle unless you made your own playlist. And with that, let's just take it from the top. 10 opens and closes with the slinky, mostly instrumental track, Master Slave. That slink comes courtesy of Jeff Amen's fretless bass, which he referred to in a 1994 Bass Player Magazine interview as my tribute to Mick Karn. Mick Karn played for an English art rock band called Japan in the early 80s, and his fretless bass sound was key to Japan's signature style. This is Tim Palmer. He's a record producer, he's an audio engineer, a guitarist, and a songwriter. And among about a million other things, he also mixed Pearl Jam's 10. Through the 80s, uh, obviously there were there was a lot of fretless bass with people like Pino Palladino, and, uh, who's uh, an exceptional session bass player who played for many artists like Paul Young, etc. But not many people had used a fretless bass in, in a sort of classic alternative rock band setting the way that Jeff does. And uh, so that's really what made it special. Plus his choice of notes is always um, much more interesting than, than what you'd expect from a lot of bass players. Master Slave, you'll notice, doesn't have a trace of Stone Gossard's guitar, and that's because Stoney wasn't in the studio that day. He was taking care of himself. You know how in 2021 we're all like, if you're sick, stay home, self-care. Stone Gossard was doing that all the way back in the 90s. Jeff told Billboard magazine, I think there were a couple of days where Stone was either sick or at the dentist. We had a couple of days in the studio, and one day we did Master Slave, which is the beginning and end of the record. This was one of the things we pulled up and were like, wow, this isn't terrible. It shows you, even at the time, what Ed could ad-lib. Nothing got changed. That's just us hacking away at 12-bar blues and Ed going off and Mike going off, basically. lack of two guitars makes what happens next that much more dynamic. Once is the official side one track one to ten and it busts through Master Slave's wall like Big Jim Slade in Kentucky Fried Movie. This is Tom Earlwine from allmusic.com. Once really slams into it because that just brings you into its world with a force and, and for a couple of the songs I've heard a lot, like because of radio and stuff. Once remains song from 10 that conjures all that power and force that Pearl Jam had upon their arrival in the early 90s. It's just, if I start the album again and hear Slam Into It, it's like this, it, it still sounds mighty and distinct. 
prior to that, there were not bands that sounded exactly like that. And so, and there have been a lot of copycats since, but they, they've retained their power over the years. Once is where we can also start talking about the Gossard Tape 91 and Mama Son. The demo tape that Stone was circulating around in pursuit of a drummer and singer to round out the new band he, Jeff, and Mike were getting together had five songs on it. Dollar Short, Troubled Times, E Ballad, Richard E, and Egyptian Crave. When Eddie got his hands on the tape down in San Diego, he took off surfing. And he got to thinking about his youth and the kind of angst that 25-year-olds had in the 90s that really can't be quantified. When he got out of the water, he went to his then-girlfriend's house and got to scribbling outlines on post-its that he had stolen from work. Nobody tell his old employer. I don't want him to get in trouble. Ed got out his trusty four-track, and out came three songs. A miniature rock opera. He called the triptych Mama Son. Dollar Short became Alive, Act One. It was in, and I, I cannot stress this enough, it was a fictional story of an incestual relationship between the narrator and his mother and the aftermath of the lies surrounding his parentage. Eddie definitely had issues with his folks, but not like that. Act two, Egyptian Crave becomes Once, in which the guy from Alive becomes a serial killer who turned the hurt from his parents into all of the bad things that he did to other people, and he goes to trial for it all. Here's Hollywood Steve Huey from allmusic.com. Once is a really great album opener. It's really intense. It gives you that adrenaline rush right up top. And uh, Deep has this, like, it's that passionate Eddie Vedder intensity that, that made people go, wow, he must have had a super fucked up childhood. Every Gen Xer who was raised by uncaring baby boomers just immediately adopted Eddie Vedder as their mascot. Once again... Let me make it very clear that while Eddie Vedder's parental situation was definitely a thing, it was not the thing in the songs. I really feel like the authorities would have been notified. The third act of this Maury Povich meets Oedipus Rex meets Law & Order SVU didn't make the album, but it's still one of Pearl Jam's fan favorites. Troubled Times turned into Temple of the Dog's Times of Trouble, which morphed into Footsteps, the B-side to Jeremy, and the story of a troubled man serving time and getting real introspective about the path that led him here. Eddie Vedder, like so many other DIY punk rockers at the time, made the best of a pre-Photoshop era and access to his job Xerox machine and crafted artwork for the new music on his office copier. Remember putting scotch tape over the little holes on the top of the tape so you could do your own thing? Those were good times. Eddie wrote Four Stone and Jeff on the tape, which was a Merle Haggard compilation called Best of the 80s. And he whited out all of the Haggard info on the tape itself, except for a track called A Friend in California, and letters spelling out E-D-D-I-E. He named the three-song package Mama Son a spin on the term Mama-san, which was inspired in part by a line in The Clash's Straight to Hell. 
mama, 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 Sam. Of you and mama, 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 Sam. Mama-san, for my language peeps out there, is a loose translation of the Japanese for mother-teacher or a maternal figure. In the Clash song, Mama-san is the mother of a kid whose G.I. dad abandoned them in Vietnam when he was sent home from the war. Mama-son then becomes the name for a trilogy about the messed-up crimes of a fatherless son. Don't even think about reaching I won't be home Don't even think about stopping by Don't think of me at all Listen, y'all, as a legitimate Pearl Jam fan from way back, he's been to my share of concerts, and house parties, bars with jukeboxes. Hell, I, I hosted karaoke for a living for years. I know firsthand how the songs in this album lend themselves to drunken sing-alongs in a celebratory scene. But this album is dark. This album is going through it. But no one would ever call this album emo. I think it just rocks too hard. No offense, emo. Two of the rockinest tracks on 10 come with Side 1's Why Go and Side 2's Porch. In the liner notes to 10, Eddie Vedder dedicated Why Go to a girl named Heather. He said in a 1991 interview with the radio station KLOL in Houston that it was written about a specific girl in Chicago who was about 13 years old. And she was just fine, but... Her mother projected problems onto her that didn't exist, so they put her in a mental hospital. She refused to accept the accusations of her doing things that she hadn't been doing, but she remained hospitalized for close to two years. That same year, Eddie told Canadian journalist Karen Bliss, when you're inside and you have no control, when you're the 14-year-old version of Francis Farmer, you have reasons to be angry. Now, if you're anything like me, you didn't have any idea who Frances Farmer was before Nirvana put her name in a song title on In Utero. So, here's just a sum up. Frances Farmer was a popular Seattle-born film actress in the 30s and 40s, but developed a reputation for being difficult, which... You know, usually means she was acting exactly like the men on set. But whatever. In 1942, she was arrested for drunk driving and made the mistake of going to Mexico, which violated her parole. When she returned, she was put in a mental institution where she underwent shock treatments and a lobotomy. After her release, she began a comeback in 1958, but she died of cancer in 1970 at the age of 56. So I think if I was her, I'd probably want my revenge too. Something else about Porch, it has a spectacular instrumental break. 
And that's when Eddie likes to explore his space. And those clips where you see him climbing the set, like at Lollapalooza 92, it was usually during this song. And though we don't have any documentation, really, for what this song is about, it has become associated with Eddie's stance on abortion. As he wrote, pro-choice on his arm when Pearl Jam performed it for their MTV Unplugged concert in 1992. And that same year, he made a similar statement when the band performed it on Saturday Night Live. During that performance, he wore a t-shirt with a wire hanger on it and added these lyrics. A woman has every right to choose. Choose for herself. Hi there, this is Jill Hopkins from The Opus. After you check out this latest episode of my show, be sure to check out some of the other great programs on Consequence Podcast Network, including Rootsland, an original story of two friends who take a musical and spiritual journey from the suburbs of Long Island to the streets of Kingston, Jamaica, or Standing BTS, a bi-weekly podcast covering all things BTS and ARMY. Oh, And then there's the What Podcast. It's a weekly podcast by two Bonnaroo veterans exploring and highlighting the live music scene. They're all fantastic. So head to Consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. Oh, Black. The label wanted to release it as a single, and the band said no. This is the song formerly known as E-Ballad on the Stone Gossard tape 91. And it's the one people quoted in one of my high school yearbooks. By September 1992, Pearl Jam had three singles released from 10. Alive, Evenflow, and Jeremy. And Black was getting some airplay as an album cut. The label saw this as the ballad that could cross them over. The band, though, took a firm stance against releasing it, as Eddie didn't want to make a video or do any more promo. This band was tired. And this song was an emotional workout for Eddie. He says in the Pearl Jam 20 book that this song is about first relationships, saying... It's very rare for a relationship to withstand the Earth's gravitational pull and where it's going to take people and how they're going to grow. I've heard it said that you can't really have a true love unless it was a love unrequited. It's a harsh one because then your truest one is the one you can't have forever. Tim Palmer shares this about his part, or what would have been his part, 
and how the song turned out. When I first started mixing the song, I pushed the faders up and there was an intro on the guitar that I think Stone plays. And I was just not a fan uh, of the way it sounded. And it sounded to me like a, a sort of poor Rolling Stones guitar sound. So I, I told Stone, I said, if it's okay with you, I just want to try a couple of things, see what I can come up with. And they were fine because they were very, very open about, you know, any experimentation, you know, because they had the final say every morning we'd all meet and they'd have breakfast. We'd talk about the mix, make any changes the band wanted to make. And uh, it was a team effort. So um, with the song Black, I thought, okay, well, I know what I can do to hide that sound that I hate so much. I'll make it sound like it's coming out of a, a radio, like a tiny radio. So I tried it and I thought, oh, I quite like it. And then, of course, the vocal came in and I thought, well, that, that doesn't work. That sounds silly. So, OK, let's make the vocal sound like it's coming out of a radio at the beginning as well. So the two little parts start working together really, really small. And as I reach the end of the intro, that's where Jeff comes in on the bass with that beautiful slide down on the fretless. And the thing that happened, which, you know, it was uh, necessity being the mother of all invention, because I didn't think this would happen. but what happened was because the intro is so compact and small, when the bass comes in, the whole sonic spectrum of the full sounds just sounds so, it's just like a flower opening. It's just beautiful. And I thought, oh, wow, that's great. And uh, I played it to the band and they liked it. And that's how the front of Black became this different feeling. And, uh, yeah, it came out great. And, you know, with the mix on that one, it's a long song. And because I was new to the song, I uh, I mixed it and I got it to a place where I liked it. My immediate thought was, wow, it's a bit long. I better shorten it. <laughs> so I edited it down at the end. And I remember the look on Eddie's face when I played it to him. I said, oh, I've shortened the end, made it a lot shorter. He said, I think we'd prefer to have the whole thing, if that's OK with you. And I was like, OK, oh, sorry, OK. Now I realize, you know, how important the tracks ended up. What a terrible decision that would have been. But at the time, when I first heard it, I thought, oh, the end's a bit long. <laughs> <laughs> but we left it full length and, and the rest is history. Sheets of empty canvas Untouched sheets of clay Were spread out before me As her body Side two opens with Oceans, an ode to Eddie's ex, Beth, and his surfboard, which I assume also has a woman's name. He wrote the lyrics while locked out of the rehearsal space. Now, I typically use that time to smoke a joint and check my messages, but that's why I'm not in a world-famous rock band. While technically Oceans was released commercially as a single to international markets in 1992, it wasn't released as a U.S. single until June of 1995 and was only available as a more expensive import version beforehand, so I'm saying it still counts. Oceans also happens to be both Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard's favorite song on 10. 
the songwriters relayed to the line of best fit that it's one of the songs that makes them excited to write songs and that it was one of the first they wrote together as a band that made them feel like they were truly pushing a musical envelope. In the liner notes, Tim Palmer, the engineer, is credited on the track as having played Fire Extinguisher and Pepper Shaker. Now, I too am an auxiliary percussionist, so I just, I really just had to see what was up with that. Basically, when I was mixing that song, I wanted to add a little more to the percussive element of that song. And because we were in the countryside and there's no music stores, we were literally out there. I just went to the kitchen and grabbed a, a pepper shaker, tried a few and found the one that sounded best. And I just played that as the shaker. And as far as some sort of chiming, I got a couple of drumsticks and just played a, a fire extinguisher. And, you know, necessity is the mother of all invention. And that's how we ended up using that. It's very subtle, but it adds to the textures in the song. And I think that's a special song too. Every good rock band who cites Neil Young as an influence should definitely have an anti-war song in their catalogs. Garden is Pearl Jam's. Ten was recorded shortly after the first Gulf War began, and Garden came about when Eddie Vedder was hanging out with Chris Cornell and Stone Gossard in a pool hall, and oh my god, I've never wanted to be in a pool hall so badly. President George H.W. Bush came on television to talk about the United States invasion of Kuwait, and Eddie wondered why we were doing that. I won't be taken, yet I'll go. Tom Earlwine sees this as the point in the album where you begin to see the band that Pearl Jam would eventually become. In a way, they sort of point forward to verses and in many aspects of their entire career, just that they don't write songs like there's not not as many even flows in, in the future but there's definitely more like this kind of exploratory and uh textured rock as there is with garden or or deep you know that's that sort of points them forward to where they is where they head and that's one of the interesting things about 10 is that you get beyond the big singles and it's still like and the singles are undeniable and they just arrive a huge succession on the first half but it really shows you the depth and variety of the band that within that sound they can do a lot of different things and a lot of different emotions Nothing but he's got a 
a song about life and death and the harmful ways we sometimes cope with both. But it's also given its name to two very important aspects of the Pearl Jam fandom. It, for a long time, was what the band called their fan club's newsletter. The 10 Club would send out these big old, over time, like chunks of a newsletter. They had personal updates from the band, tons of behind-the-scene photos, and the kind of art you expect from Jeff. Now, it refers to an interactive digital hub of nearly 200 Pearl Jam concerts, spanning from 2000 to 2013. Go down that rabbit hole over there if you can, and have about a million hours to spare. They don't call it deep for nothing. There is a lot going on. And that brings us to Release. Release was one of the first songs Eddie wrote with the band. It was the first song they played at their first show, and it was the first song they played at our first show. The one I paid my own money to see. The first show I ever paid my own money to see in March of 1994. Purple lights washed over the stage that was positioned on one end of the floor where the Chicago Bulls had just completed their first three-peat the year before. The band took the stage and those plaintive first notes filled that old wooden basketball stadium. And honestly, I get goosebumps every time I even think about it. In Kim Neely's Five Against One, Eddie explained the improvisational nature of their lush album closer, saying, On release, everyone plugged in their guitars and started this kind of tinkling. And I started humming, moaning, or whatever, and then all of a sudden, it was like a six-minute song that totally rolled and peaked. Those words, I still refuse to write them down. Even if they need them for publishing, I won't write them down. That was just something I hadn't experienced. It was so intense. And I think, uh, that's me, Jill Hopkins now, (laughs) the way that it feeds back into Master Slave ties the whole intense, dynamic, emotional, fun, and classic album into as neat a bow as five guys who dressed like extras on Twin Peaks could have mustered. Ten is an album that contains three of the most popular songs of the entire 1990s, in the entirety of rock music. But the rest deserve our attention and our respect. And for Pearl Jam fans, there's never been a question of why. On the next episode of The Opus, we'll look at that first tour where Pearl Jam got the chance to work out all of these killer songs on the road to increasingly large crowds. And we'll look at them in the building where that tour wrapped up, just a few miles away from my house. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this has been The Opus. I'll see you next time. I am myself.
Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap. There is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts.